common phrases used around the Christmas period for those who love Jesus is the remembering of the name that was given him, Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to just explore that concept a little bit more. Emmanuel, another way of putting it, the word became flesh. When we think about Christmas in our modern day, there's a whole lot of things that crowd in on the Christmas story. And we enjoy a lot of those things. It's great to exchange the gifts and to hope for world peace, especially in our current climate around the world. We have this overemphasis, almost an exaggerated concept of the tale of Saint Nicholas. And then we often focus on the characters that were part of the biblical narrative around Christmas, the Christ event, the incarnation. And while we ought to acknowledge them, they all played a vital part in many of them fulfilling ancient prophecies. The story is not about the shepherds, as wonderful as their worship was. The wise men about their incredible four-month journey, traveling about 1,150 kilometers across deserts just to come and worship the King of Kings. It's not about even the angel choirs that announced and proclaimed the significance of this moment. It's actually all about the babe that was born in a Bethlehem stable. Wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid to rest in an animal feeding trough because there was no room in the inn. The significance of that babe, that moment in human history is astonishing. Matthew, the gospel writer who covers the lineage of Christ from King David and introduces us to the royal lineage of Jesus, says this in Matthew 1 and verse 22. This happened so that what the Lord spoke through his prophet would come true. A virgin will be pregnant and she will give birth to a son and he will be known as Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God became one of us. God became one of us. It's also translated God with us, and both are significant in the meaning of Emmanuel. I love what Max Licardo, a great author, said about this moment. In reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, the almighty, in one instant made himself breakable. And he who'd been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent 
dependent on the nourishment of a young girl. What a moment. John, who offers a different genealogy, it's a divine genealogy, introduces Jesus to us as the eternal word. And I want to contrast just quickly verse 1 of John chapter 1 and verse 14. In verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He then in the next 12 verses explains that this Word is eternal because it's God. That He was present at creation. He was the Word spoken, and without Him was nothing made that is made. And that He is the light of the world. But then he comes back in verse 40 to pick up on the three things he's just said in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just to help us line something up here, I just want to contrast those three opening statements in verse 1 and the three key things that John brings our attention to in verse 14. In verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And then he makes this astonishing statement in verse 14. The word became. And I want you to just remember became. The word became. The second statement out of verse 1 was the word was with God. And then he says in verse 14, and the word dwelt among us. He's no longer just with God, he's now with us. It's an astonishing shift. And then verse one, the first part, the last part, the word was God. And then this astonishing statement, the word became flesh. So in the beginning was the word, but then the word became. The word was with God, but now the word's with us. The word was God, but then the word became flesh. The astonishing thing about that declaration is John is telling us, this was the moment, the incarnation, when the unchanging God changed. The word became flesh. And that word became is a crucial verb in this narrative. Now God is immutable, which means he's unchanging in his essence and his character. And in no way am I hinting at anything in that aspect of the nature of God. He's always been perfect and eternal. He's never lacked anything. There's nothing external that could ever force God to change, except that he chose to do something in the incarnation. He chose to change by becoming flesh. Wow. It's astonishing. The word incarnation comes from the Greek word carne, which means flesh. And literally, in flesh, God came. And it, it, we get used to the statement, but it's breathtaking in its significance. The infinite 
chose to become finite. The eternal one entered time. The invisible became visible. That moment when Mary beheld Jesus as a newborn child, Joseph, then the shepherds and the wise men, it's the first time the face of God had been seen. And then out through the Gospels, the face of God is revealed, the voice of God is revealed on planet Earth as the God in flesh. The God who became flesh walked amongst us. And we mustn't mistake thinking that Jesus was merely a divine man, or on the other hand, that he was kind of like a human God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He he kind of became 200% man. Fully God, fully man. But for what purpose? And in Hebrews, where there's contrast in all the Old Testament sacrifices with the sacrifice that Jesus made, Jesus declares of himself in Hebrews 10 and verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body, a body you prepared for me. A body you prepared. That's at the very heart of the incarnation, the Christmas story. And again, why is this so important? And I want to just suggest four things to you this morning. Number one, the fact that God in Jesus, the the, the second person of the Godhead, took on a human body, didn't just borrow it, but became one of us, was that he was then able to die. The incarnation made it possible for Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us. All the New Testament writers pick up on this, and I'm not going to go through every reference. You'll be relieved. But Romans 8 and verse 3, Paul says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Speaking of our human flesh, our frailty caused the law to fail as a means of being made righteous and being gifted eternal life. Our humanity, our flesh failed. But God did something. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And we'd put in brackets, yet without sin, to be a sin offering for us. Right there, he's going, this is one of the reasons the incarnation was the means by which God stepped out of heaven into time and space to reach you and I, to save us. The law could not defeat sin. In fact, sin was empowered by the law. The law could only detect sin. And only Jesus, by becoming a sin offering for us, could defeat sin on the cross and give us the gift of eternal life. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for all sins. All sins, past, present, future. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you and I to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Again, Peter is focusing on the one of the reasons Jesus became incarnate, the Word became incarnate, the Word became one of us. The second thing, and it's magnificent, is that by becoming incarnate and walking amongst us, experiencing life, not just observing life, human life, but experiencing it, 
Jesus sends this powerful message. He understands us. He gets us. By the eternal son becoming flesh and by his experience, he now understands what it's like to be human. And the writer of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews 4 verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who's unable to empathize with our weakness. Just reflect on that, our weakness. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may find or receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Now, I want you to notice, and I, I, I'm not going to break open those two verses beyond just one quick observation. He talks about our weakness, our frailty, and we hate our weakness, our frailty. And when we experience weakness and frailty and even sinfulness, we often think, I need to go and fix myself before I can come to God. I need to go and tidy up. I need to at least for a week get this right before I can come to God. And it's the totally wrong concept. Because of our weakness, we have a great high priest who experienced humanity, who knows what it's like, yet without sin, so that we can run towards him, not run away from him. He says, I understand your frailty. I understand your weakness. I understand your humanity. So run to the throne of grace to find help. J.B. Phillips, who was a Greek scholar who translated one of the first modern New Testament, or uh, yeah, New Testament, had this to say about Jesus' humanity. The record of the behavior of Jesus on the way to the cross and of the crucifixion itself is almost unbearable, chiefly because it is so intensely human. If, as we believe, that indeed God focused in a human being, we can see for ourselves that there's no play acting. This is the real thing. There are no supernatural advantages for this man. No celestial rescue party delivered him from the power of evil men. And his agony was not mitigated by any superhuman anesthetic. We can only guess what frightful anguish of mind and spirit wrung from him the terrible words, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But the cry, it is finished, cannot be one of despair. It does not mean, oh, it's all over. It means it has been completed and the terrifying task of doing God's will to the better end had been fully and finally accomplished. J.B. Phillips that insight into the total humanity of Jesus as he goes to suffer on the cross and identifies with our pain, which no doubt some of you carry as you come into this Christmas season, whether it's distant, recent, fresh, 
You have a saviour who knows what it's like to suffer pain. The third, he becomes an incredible example on how to walk on this planet. An incredible inspiration and example. Jesus provided us with an example of how to be fully pleasing to the Father, even in, when we're in the midst of struggle. And, and Peter just gives us an insight into this. One who'd walk closely with him. First Peter 2 and verse 21. For to this you were called. Listen, we're invited to this. We are called to this. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And that's an incredible thought. That in the struggle, Peter doesn't say, oh, follow Jesus, you'll have no problems. He says, in the pain, you have one who experienced incredible suffering, who sets an example on how to do it. And the final thing is that in the incarnation, which led ultimately to the crucifixion, God demonstrated the value of human life, the value of your life to him. Through the incarnation and then the life and the suffering that followed, Jesus sanctified the value of human life in a way that had not been previously done. In fact, under the ancient empires and Rome was no different. Human life was cheap. It meant little or nothing. Often with slaves captured in battle, they were considered less than the animals that were captured. Human life was insignificant, unless of course you were important and had power and influence. And Jesus in the incarnation, in becoming human, and then ultimately in his death, places extraordinary value on every single individual. Romans 5 and verse 8 says this, But God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right there is the sole love of God. Not just God sort of shouting from heaven, love you, but it wouldn't want to be you. No, he became one of us to demonstrate his love for us. He laid down his life to demonstrate his love. Not just to talk about love, but to show love, to demonstrate love. And in that verse, to me, one of the most astonishing things that you could almost miss is that he did this while we were still sinners. I want that to just resonate for a moment. While we were still sinners, To put it another way, while we had nothing to offer him, absolutely nothing, except brokenness and sinfulness and separation and pain, while we were still sinners, it wasn't like, well, I've got, God, I've got this bit of my life together, I'll give you that. I'm doing pretty well here. He says, no, while you were still sinners, while you had nothing to offer God. And therein is the great lie with what I'm going to just call broadly religion. And what I mean by that, religion is a human effort to get God's approval by the things we do. And behind us is the belief somehow, if I do enough good things, it'll outweigh the bad things. 
It's even spread through the Christmas story. The whole concept of Santa working out of kids are naughty or nice, depending on whether they get a piece of coal or a toy. It's still that underlying religious concept. And while we had nothing to offer God, He loved us so much, He sent His Son incarnate in the flesh. God became one of us to place extraordinary value in His death and then the power of the resurrection. You might be here this morning, maybe dragged along by family. Maybe God's been working in your life and you've come to this moment. Maybe you've been wrestling on the inside and you sense God's just doing something in you. And it's because His Spirit is drawing you into a relationship with the living God. And you can only do that through Jesus. It's not about you becoming good enough. I've spoken to that in this moment. It's about you receiving the gift that Jesus gives because He became one of us, died on a cross, and then was vindicated in the Spirit, resurrected, that He becomes a living Savior.